New South Wales suffers 233 new cases as man in his 20s dies. Morrison's problems with women come from his men. And the good news is about solar cars. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am Ben Davison. And joining me from the seemingly forever locked down sunny suburbs of Sydney. Is it sunny bit up there? Windy, bit windy today. Bit windy. Bit- Bit windy today, bit windy today. Van, how are you going up there? Oh, well, you know, Ben, like I'm still in Sydney. You're still in Victoria. I'm still away from the dog and the house and my life. Uh, So, you know, trying to keep my spirits up, thoroughly enjoying the Olympics, as you can imagine. Yes, it's been um, pretty dramatic Olympics and lots of good Australian stories in there. Unfortunately, the Matildas won't be in the gold medal game on Friday, but they are playing for bronze against the old enemy, the USA, tomorrow. Yes, there are lots of different matchups uh, against the USA that have been going on, which are always exciting. I, I love a game between the Matildas and the US women's soccer team because I feel like it's always a win-win for me because of my, you know, not inconsiderable obsession with Megan Rapinoe. Um, but <laughs> obviously my country comes first, but it's it's not heartbreaking to me if uh, Megan Rapinoe, who has been singled out by Donald Trump and his movement for abuse and criticism, I always enjoy it when she prevails. <laughs> well, he's hoping that maybe, maybe we can, maybe we can get a compromise. Maybe, maybe Megan Rapinoe can be player of the match and uh, the Matildas can, can walk away with the bronze medal. That'd be a good outcome. Yeah, that would be superb. That would be superb. Hey, Van, I do want to give a quick shout out um, to the McCain workers in Tasmania. I know a lot of listeners of the show engaged with our call outs, um, you know, across social media and the weekend wrap to support those workers who were locked out by the multinational corporation McCain. Um, That support has paid off. Those workers standing strong has paid off. And they're now back in the door. They were locked out by the by the uh, by the bosses. Uh, they're now back in the door doing what they need to do, which is make food for the whole country. And uh, so that's a big that's a big congratulations to them and to everybody who supported that campaign. Negotiations are still ongoing, so you can see what they're up against there, trying to get just just pay equity with other McCain workers in Australia. There's quite a quite a way for them to go. Oh, they've fought a magnificent campaign and fair play to Unions Tasmania who've been backing them in. Obviously, the mighty, mighty AMWU who never abandoned their members. Uh, It's been great to see uh, the active delegates at McCain in Tasmania, uh, you know, make their presence felt on social media and uh, see the number of people who show solidarity to them is always really moving. But, yeah, so if you want to support them, there are lots of petitions and solidarity funds and things going on. Um, You should follow Unions Tasmania and follow the AMWU on Twitter so you can keep an eye on what they're up to because these kind of industrial campaigns, they really, when there's a victory, it sets a new context for workers everywhere. Like we are, as workers, all involved in what's going on at McCain. It really is a touch one, touch all situation. If McCain workers take a hit, that means anyone anywhere who works can take a hit across this country. So back them in. Uh, And it's fantastic that the lockdown has ended. 
Yeah, absolutely. And can lockdown, I just... sorry, lockdown. I'm <laughs> dreaming for lockdown to end. Can uh, you tell? It's on my mind all the time. Absolutely. Lockdown end, lockdown end, end, no. lockdown end. Well, hopefully soon. The, but, uh, and of course, this show uh, exists in part thanks to the uh, sponsorship of Australian Unions. And, you know, the McCain story is a really good example of why being in union is so important. It's such a such a strength, such a good outcome. You know, positive outcomes come from being in union. So if you're not a member and you're listening to this show, perhaps for the first time, uh, go to Australian Unions, all one word, Australian Unions, .org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W for the week on Wednesday, uh, and you can join your union today. You can access that link at any time on any browser and join your union because like the McCain workers, um, you want that support. You want to be part of the collective um, when you're up against a multinational employer or any employer, really. Um, you need that support. Let's... I just want to make it clear, though, Ben, before we go any further, uh, we are sponsored by Australian Unions, but we don't actually get a kickback or anything like that if you use that link. That link is just so you and I can enjoy the sheer joy of knowing that our show is encouraging people to join unions. So we literally get paid in joy. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So there's no, uh, yeah, yeah. Using that link is just so we know how many people who listen to the show join? There's no direct correlation between payments um, to us from that. The sponsorship of the show is a, is a is a broad sponsorship, so we we appreciate that. Um, yeah, I, I, I did see there was some conversation on Facebook about uh, how much we promote unions. Well, we are both unionists. We both believe in unionism. That the Australian unions do sponsor the show. Uh, and we do have our own link, and that's just so that we have some sense. And what we do know is that lots of people who listen to the show do join um, directly as a result of listening. So congratulations to everybody who has joined since listen, since starting to listen to the show, and congratulations to everyone who's been a member for many, many years, as Van and I both have. I feel it's important to point out that, you know, the best things in our lives have happened because of trade unions. And I say that not only because Ben and I are products of a generation that was brought up with Medicare, which unions fought for, and superannuation that unions fought for, and all of the other workplace conditions, and we have been workers in that economy. But also, Ben and I met at a union party. So <laughs> that's right. we're 100% in. That's exactly right. Look, look <laughs> let's... Um... <laughs> That's right. Join your union. You too might meet the love of your life. Um, let's uh, talk about COVID. We have to talk about COVID. Everybody's always talking about COVID. We're always talking about COVID. Everybody wants it to be over. If only wishing made it so, folks. Um, unfortunately, wishing doesn't make it so. Uh, and in fact, in Victoria this morning, we woke up to zero new cases. And rub it in, Victoria. Rub it in. And then, and then, before the close of the day, of course, we had one new case, um, which does mean that we're back to a hundred active cases in Victoria. Ooh, I'm Victoria. We had one case today. Ooh, everything's well, terrible. Well, well, I'm in New South Wales, buddy, and it's more than two hundred. Two hundred and thirty-three. Oh God. 
Yeah. Do you know what I'm waiting for? Can I tell you what I'm waiting for? Sure. I'm waiting for the super spreader event, which was the anti-lockdown protests. Yeah. Because by the sort of coronavirus calendar, by this weekend, those cases should be showing up. If, of course, the people who probably did catch coronavirus, like statistically, given the yeah. situation in New South Wales, they are likely to have caught the Delta variant, some proportion of that crowd, and because of their behaviour and their proximity and the rest of it, I'm genuinely terrified about what the number's going to be like by next Monday and whether they're going, whether anybody who may have caught corona at that demonstration, that insane, stupid demonstration, if uh, if they report it, if they actually seek medical help or if they just keep sharing it, I don't know. But that's my biggest fear at the moment is that we're going to see an explosion in cases. Well, Gladys, Gladys said today that she actually expects that the numbers haven't peaked yet. Um, uh, partly because of that that ridiculous uh, fascist organised event, um, and it's it's terrifying. Like just the numbers today in New South Wales, two thirty three new cases today, the third worst day in the pandemic. Uh, there are two hundred and eighty six people in hospital in New South Wales with COVID. Fifty three are in intensive care. Two people passed away. One was a man in his 80s who was in hospital and another was a man in his 20s who um, had sought medical care, uh, was isolating at home and being checked on and seems to have rapidly gone downhill um, between um, visiting nursing check-ins. So, you know, this idea that, oh, well, we'll just let it rip and as long as old people and people who are vulnerable are vaccinated, it'll be all right. Well, It's not all right. It's not remotely all right. It's only all right if people are vaccinated. Well, this is the second... I recommend that everybody have a look at this week's Media Watch, which I caught on repeat today, which was excellent. It was talking about some of the disinformation going around being spread by organisations like Sky News uh, and Craig Kelly and Alan Jones about uh, the efficiency of the vaccinations. And they were talking about, oh, you know, there's been this explosion in case numbers in Israel and they're the most vaccinated people on earth. And what we know from what's happening in Israel, where they have a really high proportion of people who are vaccinated and they're going into this third uh, vaccination round of booster shots, is that the people who are catching coronavirus there are not dying of it or getting the severe debilitation if they are vaccinated. So the vaccination actually stops you getting the the form of disease that will kill you um, overwhelmingly in some extraordinary percentage of cases. And I do recommend that Media Watch because we won't go into all of the details around that data here, but they absolutely take apart the outrageous uh, disinformation that has been shared through Sky, which got them banned from YouTube this week. Yeah. Um, for spreading coronavirus disinformation, and, which and is just incredible to think that a license has been agreed to uh, that will pump Sky News into every regional um, and rural-based television set in the country. Uh, but these are people who are not considered reliable enough as a news service for YouTube. There is a... There is some information available. Uh, I, I tweeted it earlier in the week because I think it's outrageous that Sky is allowed to broadcast at all. If, you, if, you, if you're too disingenuous to be on YouTube, you're too disingenuous to even be on our pay TV uh, airwaves in my view. But the 
there is some information going around on the internet. I shared it um, that shows you how you can lodge objections um, through your local government because it is a rebroadcasting arrangement for Sky News, uh, and you can uh, you can lodge objections there. And there's quite a campaign building to encourage people uh, to to lodge those objections because those those relays and rebroadcasting are, are funded often. Um, through a combination of different government levels and there is a capacity there for there to be objections raised. So uh, I'll try and reshare that on Twitter so people can see that because I know a lot of our uh, a lot of a lot of our listeners share our uh, distaste for Sky News and for disinformation in general. So we don't want to see that spread around. Um, I also suggest those of you who want to keep up to date with the campaign to make Sky accountable is that Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister, he's just he, he's he's having a wild time at the moment on his social media channels, especially on Twitter, really going after uh, News Limited or News Corp as it is now, sorry, News Corp in regards yeah. to their disinformation campaigning. And I think it's fantastic, uh, the activism that he's taken up for media transparency in this country, and I certainly recommend that people get behind him on Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I do want to touch on, because there are cases in other states, before we come back to um, New South Wales and the situation more broadly, 17 new local cases in Queensland. Obviously, Queensland, uh, there are 11 local government areas in lockdown in Queensland as well. Understand, there's a case in Cairns now as well. Um, so hopefully that's not an outbreak uh, further north, because uh, currently it's been pretty located in the southeast. But uh, hopefully that's uh, getting they're getting that under control. Three in South Australia, one of which was local, two which were return travellers. And, you know, Van, we, we talk about one case in Victoria. Well, in WA this afternoon they have a case and the Premier called a press conference because they have a case. So long has it been since they've had one. He called a press conference this afternoon to reassure the people of WA that it was a fly-in, fly-out worker who had a low viral caseload uh, and probably wasn't that infectious. So, look, a lot of the country... You know, we're dealing with COVID. We're all dealing with COVID. And even if you're not uh, in a locked down part of the country, you've got friends, family, co-workers who are, uh, you know, and it and it goes to show that the vaccine rollout, it was so important. It was such an important job to get right. And Morrison has absolutely stuffed it up. Absolutely oh, stuffed, stuffed it completely. It I mean, we had that window where... If we had have had the vaccines organised and rolled out and organised, if there had have been a plan, if the resources had have been deployed towards the vaccine rollout as opposed to just nonsense PR campaigning, $40 million of nonsense PR campaigning. You know, it came out today, there was a, a piece, Lenore, um, Lenore Taylor shared it from The Guardian, about how the government has been paying a PR agency to just put out press releases of data that's released elsewhere, like essentially just... A PDF. It's a PDF. Yeah. They get a PDF from the comms people in the department and then they they attach it to an email that they then send to a media list 
which would be exactly the same media list that the department has. Yeah, I saw that. It's outrageous. And and this PR agency is being paid to do this nonsense job, like more taxpayers' money, more pork barrelling, more wastage. And the Morrison government refuses to say how much they're being paid. How much of our money they're being paid to do that to attach a PDF? Is it the milkshake agency? I mean, this is what I. This is what everybody wants to know. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a job. What a, you know? What do you do every day? Oh, you know, about seven thirty every morning, I've got to attach a PDF, send it off. What else do you do? Oh, that's it. I just do that. Just do that one thing. Government pays. You know, is a government job? No, no, outsourced from government. Costs more that way. Yeah. It's outrageous, absolutely outrageous. It's and, and, so bad. It just um, makes me so angry. Well, I mean, they've essentially done much the same thing with the with the vaccine rollout, right? Like they started off giving money to McKinsey and KPMG, trying to get consultancy firms somehow. Or another. I don't know how consultancy firms were supposed to roll out a vaccine, but, you know, they gave them a stack of money. No one can tell us what for, really. Um, and then... They've just totally bungled it, and now the army has taken over the vaccine rollout. You know, we're, we're in a situation where the Morrison government has stripped away the public service so heavily and so badly that the Australian army has to be put in charge of rolling out a vaccine program. Oh, it is just ridiculous. And, of course, people have said that, I mean, the problem that we have is that the army... In certain areas of the community, and I made this point on Twitter the other day, I got really angry about it, where you know, people were saying, um, Berger Clean was giving a press conference. Oh, no, it wasn't Berger Clean, it was Hazard. Yeah. Hazard was giving this press conference and going, oh, yes, you know, we understand that uh, there are communities who are really mistrustful of um there are communities that are really mistrustful of an army presence and, um, you know, because of the experiences they've had with governments elsewhere. And I was like, you mean there are communities of refugees in this country who are very mistrustful of governments because of the experience they had with the Australian government, you know, yeah. and that the presence of, uh, you know, people in, in uniform knocking down doors and, you know, this kind of intense monitoring that actually exists in a context of how we have been treating refugees in this country for years and years and years and years. And if we're actually serious about dealing with the implications of coronavirus, we have to redress what we have been doing with those communities. Like It was just so extraordinary. Like this man was genuinely shocked that there were communities who were mistrustful of the Australian government. And I'm like, there are communities full of people who were interned without trial and indefinitely and then put on temporary protection visas when they're from places like Afghanistan where if they go home they will be murdered by the Taliban. Like, what did you expect to happen? Yeah, he's pretty out of touch, I have to say. I think the the whole concept of having to use the, the military to roll out the vaccine is just disgraceful frankly like you know general Frew, i think his name is um you know seems like a perfectly decent enough person but at the end of the day he's not an elected representative he's not a public servant in the in the sense of most public servants he's a military commander uh and now he's doing press every day and leading a military operation to roll out 
a health solution because the Morrison government has failed so badly. And it's not just um, it's not just refugees, I think, um, who are who feel this way. I think there's a lot of Australians who feel the same way. Uh, you know, Sally McManus was on, um, I think it was today or sunrise uh, earlier today, and uh, she was saying that, you know, one of the issues is we have to remove barriers for people to get the vaccine, you know, and in specifically she was talking about insecure workers who don't have leave, the fact that many low-paid workers are working multiple jobs, the fact that you can't get the jab in most workplaces. Like these are all real barriers and, and a problem that, frankly, Morrison should have been aware of because we've been talking about it for years, that these are real genuine problems that real genuine people face. But, of course, they just didn't factor that in. Now to, to suddenly have the army... Uh, uh, walking the streets of these communities uh, and and being the ones in charge of the vaccine rollout, that seems to me to be an increase in the barrier. Now, there's no question there'll be some efficiencies in the way the army does things, but an army is not designed to do medical rollouts. That long-term medical rollouts is not what an army is designed to do. No, but you we know? don't have public servants anymore. Or the ones we have are completely overloaded, or they're outsourced, or they're salary capped. We just don't we don't have the adaptive the adaptive capacity in the public service anymore. There was a time when during a national crisis, like a there would literally be a mobilization of government departments and you know investment in staff, and you would take on jobs. Like you look at the kind of mobilizations around this, like around the Second World War, you know, unprecedented crisis has to be adapted quickly, and also reconstruction of this country after the Second World War when we're building new institutions and creating opportunities and putting in infrastructure like the Snowy Mountain Scheme and those kind of things. Like we we had we had an understanding of public service that was based in meeting immediate needs. And, of course, this crazy free market, Milton Friedman, outsource everything ideology, just give McKinsey some money and they'll work it out, has has absolutely crippled us. It's crippled us. And the fact that tens of millions of dollars have gone to PR agencies and consultants and at the end of the day Morrison has had to mobilise the army because McKinsey isn't going door to door. No. Now, these PR people, the PDF sharers, they're not going door to door. They're not actually putting the logistics in. Like that's where this ideology gets us. But it's still a massive transfer of common wealth, taxation revenue, you know, the resources of government to private providers for nothing and doubling up on a resource investment to get the army to do it. And I think it's telling that, you know, today it was announced that Hazard has um, spoken to Martin Foley, who's the, so finally the New South Wales Health Minister has spoken to the Victorian Health Minister. Um, you know, you would have thought that that kind of communication would be ongoing, it'd be multi-level, um, that, that you'd have that from just about every level of bureaucracy as well as all the way up to the minister. But it seemed to me the way it was being discussed today, like that, that was either new or unusual. Um, and frankly, you know, there are there are lessons to be learned from other states' experiences. Like it, it's, you know, Victoria has invested in a strong public service, and and that's a good thing. 
That's a good thing. Now, New South Wales has a Minister for Customer Service, which is, in my view, an abomination. But, you know, they seem to be so determined that um, all it takes is for them to get up and say, use your common sense, please don't go outside. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, we'll give some money to consultants. Oh, that didn't work. We'll give some money to the army. I mean, what happens if that doesn't work? You know, like, well, we're living in the result of that not working. I am yeah. trapped in New South Wales. You are in Victoria. You know, like I'm going through my sixth lockdown and I can't, I have literally no hope that it's going to get any better. Like I'm still here. I'm well, still here after all these weeks because of this this absolutely deplorable disorganisation and incompetence and ineptitude from the New South Wales government and the way that it gets blamed on individuals. Use your common sense. It's about what you do. It's about how you behave. And, again, I'm just like that's not how a society functions. A society does not function like a Milton Friedman far-right like neocon manifesto about how we're all just you know public like individual choice agents and the market will determine a reality based on us all acting in our own best interest but there are complexities in communication in management that are cultural and structural and that speech from hazard like i keep coming back to it it is just so obvious that the total lack of diversity in the ranks of the Liberal Party mean that they do not have the resources to make comprehensive decisions because they don't comprehensively represent the electorate. There should be somebody who is present within that decision-making fora who is saying, actually, refugees who've been through this experience are going to require X and Y. Uh, People who do not have English as a first language are going to uh, are based in these areas and these are the social nodes that they need to connect with in order to get information about uh, protection and, and stopping transmission and healthcare and services. It, it, it is so obvious, like this war on workers that the Liberal Party have been prosecuting for 40 years mean that they don't actually understand the reality of their policies impacting on on workers, like they well, don't understand. They they have casualized and casualized and casualized. They've casualized the public service. They've absolutely ripped the guts out of manufacturing. They've created you know this service economy which is completely unstable. And they've totally promoted Uberization and subcontracting and you know and platform capitalism. That's what they're all about. And we now live in that where everybody's hustling. Like you and I are in insecure work. You know we are what do they call us, portfolio career individuals, where yeah. we, we subcontract and work for a number of employers and our work is fundamentally unstable and it, and mine has been completely trashed by coronavirus. Like a theatre maker in a country where the theatres aren't open is is problematic from, from a career perspective. Yeah. I think that's the polite way of putting it. And we people have to be paid to stay home. People cannot afford to feed themselves or pay rent or feed their children or, you know, I did an interview with Marcus Paul on 2SM this morning. I love Marcus Paul. And he brought up the whole concept of menstrual poverty and the fact that there are women in our community who are so absolutely economically marginalised by the, the insecurity of work and the unstable welfare situation in this country at the moment and all the deprivation of coronavirus that they literally cannot afford to buy menstrual products when they get their period. 
and are forced into these positions of unbelievable vulnerability and social marginalisation because, quite honestly, they can't socially function because of their their menstrual period and what that costs to them. And the fact that you have women who are making decisions about whether they can feed their children or maintain their own sanitary needs, that is terrifying. That is happening in this country. That is a real thing. That is affecting thousands and thousands of people. And yet the Liberals just can't comprehend the idea that you need to pay people for them to stay home. You need to pay people so they have enough money to eat. Oh, my God, it is so enraging. Yes, no, I I agree Uh, 100%. It is enraging. And it comes back to that issue about representation and who's actually making decisions and on what basis are they making those decisions, with what information, through what lens, with what ideological bent. And, And it really brings me to, and I want to discuss this, you know, we've discussed before Morrison's problem with women because, of course, earlier in the year, this was an issue that came up, the Morrison government's problem with women, right, and that Morrison was struggling because um, there were accusations of rape against uh, the then Attorney General. There were accusations of rape within the ministerial wing of the Parliament House. There was Linda Reynolds causing a person who'd made a rape complaint a lying cow. There was Alan Tudge who'd had an affair with one of his staff who then had been treated poorly in the workplace. Um, the staff and- member, not Alan Tudge. Alan Tudge is doing fine. Well, Alan Tudge got promoted, as a matter of fact. So there, there sort of became this moment where it seemed like maybe culturally we were going to make a shift. We were going to we were going to go, no, no, it's not okay for the Prime Minister and his government to behave like this towards women. There was a number of sort of internal inquiries announced. Um, but as you say, there are now, you know, just ordinary working women in our community who are making the decision about whether they feed their kids or buy their sanitary products. And it comes at the same time as, you know, Morrison hasn't really done anything to address the fundamental problems. In fact, the, the point is that has been made this week that, in fact, the situation is in some ways worse because Porter, against whom the claims are, are well known, there was a, an abortive defamation suit that he tried on, um, has now been made leader of the House. Parliament is sitting. He's been made leader of the House um, for the government. Uh, Alan Tudge, who I just mentioned before, uh, it's come out that he was responsible for a list of the top 20 marginals and the $660 million um, pork and ride car park scandal. Pork Um, and ride, the Labor Party are calling it. Yeah, pork and ride scandal. you know, which just it, which says so much about the, 12, the past twelve months of Australian politics, really. And then of course, we saw on the weekend uh, Michaela Cash, who who replaced Porter as Attorney General uh, and and Industrial Relations Minister, who previously had had to take a step to a lower ministry because, uh, well, among many things. Um, didn't cooperate with a federal police investigation about leaks out of her office. Uh, there was a, a fluff piece in an attempt to kind of normalise 
the the women of the Morrison leadership. And and if you look at that piece, the cat strangling from, photo. Yeah, quite aside from that, there's also this this kind of bizarre p- part of the interview where you know her attempt to seem normal makes her seem like an alien. You know, she's obsessed about how coffee machines work. Uh, and <laughs> curry for your country. <laughs> That's yeah. a good one. Curry for your country. <laughs> you know, and this sort of, she's quite proud of a Thatcherite, you know, if you work harder, you'll, you, you'll achieve more. If you get barriers thrown in your way, just break your way through them. Just oh, work yeah. harder, if you work, work harder. If you want to achieve, you just got to work harder. And that's, like, that's very interesting, Michaelia, because I seem to recall that your father was the leader of the upper house in WA, was a senior figure in the WA Liberal Party and owned his own construction business. You grew up in a seat of wealth and power and privilege, networked, in fact, to the, the systems that promoted you from the day you were born. So I'm trying to work out what you really know about hard work because I, on the other hand, spent years and years as a waitress um, which in a job that involved literally scrubbing people's vomit from toilet floors after particularly busy Friday nights and that to me was hugely hard work like the kind of hard work yeah. I cannot believe that was physically debilitating and exhausting and paid the princely sum of eight pounds an hour which by the way was incredibly good because minimum wage was only six pounds an hour in the UK and yet I don't think your job is as hard as that. Like no. I don't think that you have ever ended a day, despite all the disasters. Well, given, well, given of, her, of your... given her obsession with the magic of coffee machines in cafes, it's pretty clear that she doesn't quite get how working people actually work. Um, you know, like doesn't get it at all. And and all of these all of these men who've been promoted, all these men who've been accused uh, of horrendous things. Um, against women uh, have been promoted effectively uh, or if punished only temporarily. And and the Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, has quite rightly written a piece that says it calls into question the morality of our current leadership. I think we all, I think everybody who listens to this show would agree that the connection to reality that people like Cash and Tudge and Porter have is going to be tenuous, right? That yeah, a, li- a little bit, oh. just a little bit. Because if you if you work hard, then you'll achieve. And it's like, Michaela, you have the position you hold at the moment as Attorney General merely because the preferred choice um, of your party leadership was forced to drop out and you happened to be the last person left standing. You had already been demoted from the position of IR Minister because you were incompetent um, and because you o- oversaw a total and complete scandal, which were the, the leaks that led to the AW, the, uh, the leaks around the publicising of the AWU raids. Questions have never been answered by you about exactly what went on there and you were re-upped merely because you were present so don't give me this oh you know if you work hard what absolute delusion what delusion these people live with and this is why they can't run a vaccine rollout you know it's that that lack of imagination or empathy sympathy insight experience any of those words we can use to denote the fact they do not know how australians live they have absolutely no idea and it and it it does call into question the morality of their leadership. You know, fundamentally, it's minister after minister, scandal after scandal. And and when you think about it, 
when you think about it, um, it's it's a problem that comes from the men within the Liberal Party and the National Party as well, quite frankly, in that there is no accountability, you know, and, it, and it's not just a, when it comes to their behaviour towards women or women's policy or, or the position of women within the parliament or even broader society. It's time and time again. And I think the Australian people have become a bit desensitised to the idea of uh, pork barrelling and rorts and so on. But the broader, the broader issue, I think, Van, is that that level of desensitivity means that a minister like Tudge who should have been forced at least out of the ministry due to his behaviour towards a female member of his staff, but was not punished, was in fact promoted, right, is then clearly guilty, right, clearly guilty of misuse of his position for political purposes. The the, the auditor, uh, the Australian National Audit Office makes it very clear that there was a list of top 20 marginals and that's how the money was dished out. And Tudge just comes and says, oh, no, that's not right. I disagree with that. And there's no repercussion. You know, the morality of the Morrison leadership is so lacking, so lacking in that it has allowed this seeping corruption from, from, oh, well, it's just a bit of misuse of taxpayers' money and we're not going to do anything about that through right through now to the total dehumanization and the promotion of those who have dehumanized the women in our society that is corrupt morality that is a corruption of leadership and that's in my view fundamentally why we have to get rid of the Morrison government because it it then seeps into you know Qantas getting money from the government and then the next day the next day, standing down two and a half thousand workers all around the country, right? Janet Reinhart gets concessions to build mines and then puts in place a dodgy EBA that thankfully the Fair Work Commission strikes out. The richest person in the history of this nation tried to rip off people's wages. Like, it's a corrupt morality within the leadership of the nation that sets that whole framework. That would be my view. Um, that would be my view. Yep. No, I mean, I'm with you. It, it's it's so, it's so corrupt. Like it's just such a corrupted shell of what a government should be. Like I would really like to be able to have this is the the dilemma of my years at the moment. I would really love to have an honest ideological fight with the government that was about the principles of collectivism and socialism versus the principles of individual and capitalism, and 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 batter that out as dem- as you know the dialectics of the democratic moment. That's not what's going on. So we have a government that is so absolutely hamstrung by nonsense ideology that they can't actually make decisions with the material resources that they have in the interest of the community. And when I say material resources, I mean their human personnel as well. They just don't have the people to manage the crises that governments actually have to deal with. So we're sort of beyond, it's sort of post-ideological 
like nonsense that we're yeah. dealing with from this government. You know, the, the constant recycling of Michaelia Cash, the minister for whatever she wasn't minister for last week kind of thing, these dreadful men with behaviour that is just and accusations against them that are unconscionable. Linda Reynolds, who's just like a textbook, um, you know, in, incompetent minister, everything she touches withers. Like, and again and again, Susan Lay, who went from yeah. scandal to being recycled back onto the front bench. You, you know, this, like I said, it's post-ideological because it's just really a, a circus of ineptitude that we're stuck with because of the people who are involved in that level and the lack of any kind of diversity in decision-making processes which might actually mean a sensible allocation of resources. And it's so frustrating. Well, look, it is frustrating. I think one of the one of the things that I think is is still a source of hope is those is stories like the the one about um, the workers at McCain, right? And the and the, the the baggage handlers at Qantas who were outsourced and recently with the TWU won won that case to say that that was done unlawfully. Like, is that when Working people are still standing together. We can still get wins, you know. Like even in the 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 morass of Morrison's ideological vacuum um, and the corruption of his own morality, working people can still stand together. Can still get wins in our communities, in our workplaces. Still make an impact, you know. Still get decent governments at a state level still get things done locally and and that's where I draw a lot of hope from and I know a lot of our listeners do as well and that's why people do join their unions like that's why we encourage it the importance of joining a union is is a long game as well about is a long game about competency and what we want like we want competent government that's the the inherent democratic demand is that you're voting for a government which is capable of governing and the union movement is absolutely crucial because it is the mechanism by which ordinary working people can actually have the experience of uh, of agglomerating their skills experiences and insights to take on leadership positions within the community some of which are are in government and you and I have a very meaningful connection to people who we know from the trade union movement who have gone into parliament in order to make a contribution, a positive contribution to the lives of working people through the Australian Labor Party. You know, people are always like, no, you know, why are you a Labor person? And it's like because I passionately believe in the, <laughs> I passionately believe in the capacity of working people to govern themselves and yeah. that there are mechanisms that exist within the movement and the party that enables people to champion workers at the level of government and friends of ours like Tony Sheldon and Jed Carney and Jess, and Jess Walsh and Terry Butler and people who have come through the union movement and that experience of fighting for working people every day and so many more of them as yeah. well. But, you know, when I go around the country and sort of teaching workshops for people about activism and communications, which is, you know, what I do when I'm not locked in a house in Sydney indefinitely. Um, I talk about, you know, the the activist pyramid, you know, that you people start as observers and observers become participants. Participants become organisers. Organisers become leaders. And becoming involved in it, if you've ever wanted to change the world, 
join a union, get involved, become a delegate, you know, take on, run for election, build democratic majorities in your workplace, prosecute your agenda, learn about law and policy. Those are the skills and experiences that actually enable us to get people into government who can allocate resources responsibly and make this country better. And I've got to say, um, there was a there was a study done this week. They interviewed like 100 historians about who was ostensibly Australia's greatest prime minister. And who did they find out it was, Ben? Did you see that particular study? I did. It was John Curtin. John Curtin, my favourite prime minister by some distance, who was a person who didn't go to university, who got their break um, through the trade union movement and was uh, was a delegate and organiser and I think ended up state uh, secretary of what is now MIA, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance, through the old um, oh, AJA, I- Australian Journalists Association, who went on to become, you know, this impoverished kid who grew up in Creswick in was Victoria who ended up in Western well, Australia. Yes, timber workers and... Yeah. Um, and now and, CFMU Manufacturing Division. CFMU Manufacturing Division and got the education that made and the experience and the connection with people that made him Australia's greatest prime minister. And at the time of our greatest crisis, which was the Second World War, which was an existential crisis for this country, given the fact the British were prepared to sign off the top yeah. half of the continent to uh, an invading army thinking that, you know, it was it was better to te- protect the old country than the one that we, you know, actually live in. I'm using the term old country ironically, obviously, yeah. um, given the fact the world's oldest culture uh, is from here. Yeah. Um, but it, it was that diversity of experience that enabled Curtin as our leader in the moment of our nation's greatest crisis to make decisions that kept us al- alive. And so- that is why the trade union movement <laughs> is important. Absolutely. So, you know, join your union. You might end up prime minister. You might end up meeting the love of your life. You might end up, you know, just representing your workmates uh, in order to get a pay rise. Like you, you might end up just need just accessing the services that you need. Like it's one of those things that can kind of take you wherever you want it to take you, wherever you're prepared to go. Um, being a member of a union is is a way of of yeah, getting there really, and it's it's telling when you think about the fact that you know the Victorian treasurer um, is from the the TW Transport Workers Union, the the deputy premier of Queensland is from the United Workers Union, and there are so many examples of ministers serving in current governments in Australia right now who who have that experience. And when you look at the way they make their decisions, you can see when you think about it and you know that background, it actually becomes much more apparent about why they make the decisions the way that they do. All right. We need some good news, Van, because uh, while people can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow to join their union and embark upon their John Curtin-like ascension to Prime Minister and reshape the nation, um, we need good news today in order to refill refill our tank of hope. What's going on with solar cars? Well, we don't need to refill a tank. Hey, you're good. Yeah, <laughs> so it, I genuinely cannot tell you how exciting it is. This was actually news from March, but I only found out about it today and I got very, very excited about it because it means even reflecting on this from a distance since March, it means there's been greater progress. Uh, there's a company called Aptera Motors and they have built this incredible 
solar-powered car. Um, it's not quite... It's, it looks like the Batmobile, quite frankly. It's got little bat wings and this really unusual sort of design. Uh, it looks a bit, a bit a, like a little beetle. It's sort of and like a, a miniature Lamborghini in some ways. It's yeah, it's covered as. with 34 square feet of solar cells. So it, it, the, the design of this car is so sophisticated that it's based on an, an ultra sort of fuel efficiency model. It's actually a tricycle. Like yeah, right. it's a three-wheeled vehicle and it's designed in the way it is so that it has like a 0% drag. So aerodynamically it's not burning up any more fuel than it needs to go. So this is part of the, the issue with petrol engines is that, uh, that the, the, the design of cars means that you're basically pushing into the wind and the fuel is needed for you to push through it, whereas the design of this car, which is, I mean, it's just phenomenal to think, there's 34 square feet of solar cells that make up the shell of this particular kind of vehicle. And it means that to get um, fuel efficiency, you can go, um, you can you can travel 40 miles uh, in, in the car just after um, leaving it parked in the sun for a day. That's pretty good. Oh, it's it's totally amazing, and it's a combined. That's free travel, right? Like everybody it's complains free about petrol prices. You well, literally leave the car, the car in, the in the sun, and you will have enough fuel in it for it to travel forty miles. And obviously, because you know the sun doesn't always come out, the rest of it, it's it operates as an electric vehicle as well. Yeah, and it can get uh, it will charge as an electric vehicle um, for fifteen minutes. You'll get one hundred and fifty miles on it. That's amazing. It's just totally amazing. It's an extraordinary piece of engineering. And the thing is, it's going into production. They've had 7,000 pre-orders. It would be higher than that because this news is from March. Yeah. Um, and the the incredible thing about the body and the way that it's built, the body of it, and this is what I mean about how it's this aerodynamic design, a, a typical car like on the, on the market now has between like 200 to 300 parts to the body. Yep. Whereas this, the Aptera car, has four. Wow. And um, it's it's made out of composite materials, fiberglass, carbon, aluminium, and the panelling is actually 3D printed. Like it's just an amazing thing to think that this is what we can do now. And, um, yeah, so that's really, really exciting. There was a bit more good news as well that a company in America seems to have cracked a an efficiency issue with uh, solar and wind batteries and the storage of renewable power. Um, so this is sort of a side note, but talking about, you know, the general energy yeah. mix and how electric vehicles and solar-powered vehicles and all of this is part of, you know, where we're heading technologically. And the technology they're using is just absolutely incredible. Where they're harnessing, then instead of using lithium, which is sort of the basis of battery technology, they're using iron which is great because there's more iron on Earth yeah. than there is lithium. But they're using um, as the the storage of the energy, the space between um, like between iron and oxygen, the tension when uh, iron starts to rust, they're essentially using the, the uh, electrical effect of that chemical relationship to store power from, um, from solar and wind sources. Like the technology is just incredible and they think that they've had that breakthrough they're calling it the holy grail and looking at these systems of sort of mass energy storage um, that, and yeah like that would be amazing, amazing just amazing if, if, if rusting if rusting metal was was 
suddenly the 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 battery that powered everything uh, that would be an amazing uh, outcome and uh, and one beyond my scientific understanding I have to admit uh, yeah, it's, it's beyond my scientific bits. understanding as well. A shout out to our friend Dr. Hippopotamus, um, yeah. the, the the science guru of Newcastle, who's our physicist friend who explains things to us. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you can find him as Hippopotamus on on Twitter. I certainly recommend a follow of him. Um, and yeah, and if you need more detail, I'm sure he'll work out in two seconds what we're talking about. But it, it's just it's it, it's amazing. They reckon they can get a hundred hours of storage. Um, through uh, a battery facility based around this iron-based technology and the and the rust reaction. Amazing. Um, I'd just like to say to people, look, it's really easy, obviously, with the permafrost melting in Russia, to start totally freaking out about the environment, especially if you're like Ben and I and you're on online all day and getting this constant sort of stream of information about environmental catastrophe. There are actually things you can do. And I want to give a shout out to one of my favourite organisations, which is Act on Climate Victoria, uh, who are run out of Friends of the Earth Victoria, who are just one of the most effective environmental organisations in the country, who've been responsible for so many incredible policy initiatives that have become law in the state of Victoria. Um, And they're always looking for people to get involved in campaigns. And whoever you are, wherever you are, um, there is a capacity for you to be part of that campaign. And we'll post some links to how you can follow them on Twitter or follow them on Facebook. And like I said, you know, the difference between that kind of movement and the terrible poor decision-making in the Liberal Party is diversity and there is literally a place for everyone, no matter who you are or what your skills are or where you've come from, there's a place for you in the environment movement and Act on Climate will find that place for you. Well, that is good news. Um, I also want to just give a quick shout-out to the Coca-Cola workers in WA who voted down what would have been a substandard offer of a new workplace agreement. Um, some of our listeners uh, wanted us to give them a shout out because they have been under quite a lot of pressure from management to endorse what would have been a reduction in, in their uh, employment conditions. They have not done that. They have stood strong. Um, so big shout out to the members of the United Workers Union uh, in WA who are there. They also have a tough bargaining round still to go. Um, these things all interconnect, you know, they all interconnect and it's really uh, great to see people getting active and, yeah, please do check out those links, do check out those organisations, do get involved. You know, when we say you can make a difference, you know, we're not talking about, you know, putting stuff in the bin. This is not a, you know, put put your litter in the bin, don't forget to do your recycling call out. This is a act collectively and we can make a big difference, be part of that collective change, um, you know, play your role in it, whatever it might be, and you can make it happen. Really positive way to end the show today, Van. Really, you know, upbeat. It's good. It's a really good way to do it. So We also like Act on Climate because they're good union comrades and they come to everything and their capacity for solidarity. They've made the links. Like yep. they're an environmental organisation that have made the links that – you know, it is about finding a way for work, uh, working people and jobs and environmental outcomes and they create policy in a real space for real people. And I just, I love it. I love them. I'm so proud to know them. That's so awesome. That is the week on Wednesday for this week. We have been going for nearly a year and 
officially our next episode will be our 50th. Um, I want to thank everybody who's listened to the show thus far, everybody who's shared the link, commented, sent us an email, um, you know, who has talked to their friends, joined their union as a result of listening. Nothing gives us greater joy than knowing that people are listening and taking action as a result of listening to the week on Wednesday. So please do keep it up. Do like, share, comment, subscribe. Uh, the, the weekend wrap is still coming out on Sundays and I appreciate how many of you listen to that as well. Uh, it's been a really great ride so far and hopefully there are many, many more episodes to come. And hopefully soon, Van and I will be together with Germanicus and you can cuddle the dog as he squirms and farts and groans and carries on when we record. <laughs> I dream of it. I literally I dream of it at nighttime. I love you, Vanny. I love you too. I miss you terribly. Please look after the puppy. Always. Bye. Bye.